Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. Well, this Easter morning, I invite you to open your Bibles, or maybe it's your Bible apps, or maybe it's the Bible in front of you in the pew. Um, And if you want to use the pew Bible, you can turn to page 835. But we're looking at the Gospel of Matthew this morning, the very last chapter of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28. Now, this morning, I want to consider these words about that very first Easter morning. Now, my guess is that most of you know the story of Easter, at least in its broad outline, and some of you probably even know the the details of the story, and some of you might even say, well, I even know the details of each different gospel and what's included. But this morning, I want to read this story, and I want to look at the details more closely. I want to ask, why were those details so significant 2,000 years ago, and then why are they still so significant for us today? So this is God's word, and I want to read Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. Father, thank you for your word. This morning, would you remind us of what Christ has done and draw us near to your Son, we pray in his name. Amen. I think it's a fair guess that I would hazard that most of us were not caught off guard that today was Easter. We were probably expecting it. After all, any 2023 calendar that you buy in the store will have Easter listed right on the calendar. And of course, every grocery store in the area has had an entire aisle dedicated to Easter candy ever since the day after Valentine's Day. And of course, you haven't been able to go too far in our county for the last several weeks to find a a sign advertising uh, an Easter egg hunt or a candy drop or a picture with the Easter bunny or or something along those lines. And, And my guess is even you, you've probably made plans with relatives. Maybe you got your free ham from Giant in the past week. Or or maybe you put together Easter baskets for your kids. We've known that this day was coming. And because of the long lead-up we've had for Easter, it's easy to forget just how unexpected and just how surprising that first Easter morning was for the women who got up just before dawn 
and went toward the tomb to anoint what they thought would be Jesus' dead body. But we're not celebrating Easter this morning because it was unexpected. After all, all sorts of unexpected things happen that we don't celebrate. I remember a, a day I got up with uh, my, my two sisters and we expected it to be a normal day of school and Legos and board games. And, and instead, my mom and my dad, who was not at work, woke us up and said, surprise, get in the car. And so we got in the car and we drove to the airport and we'd never flown on a plane before, but they got us on a, a plane, I guess they did when I was very young, but they got us on a plane and took us on a plane to a field trip. It was completely unexpected. But none of us are celebrating that day just because it was unexpected. Now, some things are unexpected and they have a significant impact. I think about the day that Alexander Fleming in 1928 came back to his lab and discovered his experiment had gone wrong because he'd forgotten to put his Petri dish in the incubator and it got moldy. But then he looked closer and realized that the mold was driving away the bacteria that he was trying to study. And so it was that he discovered penicillin from that mold, which has saved an estimated 200 million lives in the last 100 years. But even still, we're not celebrating Alexander Fleming Day. There was something more significant than that that happened on that first Easter morning 2,000 years ago. On that Sunday morning in Palestine, when Jesus rose from the dead, And his resurrection changed the lives of his people forever. And what I want to do this morning is look at these verses and consider first the significance of that very first Easter morning. And then I want to consider why those details are still so important for us today. So let's start with the first Easter morning. Verses 1 through 6 in our passage detail the facts of Easter. Let's take a minute just to review what happened. A group of women got up just before dawn and and headed out toward the tomb. We don't know for sure how many women went. Each gospel writer tends to focus on the women they were familiar with or their audience would have been familiar with. Matthew names Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Mark says that the two Marys went and also Salome was there. Luke tells us of the two Marys and also Johanna and then adds, and there were other women with them. And so you see how each gospel account is slightly different, but they're not at all contradictory. Because if there's two Marys and a group of other women, then all of the accounts are perfectly true. And we put them together to find the fullest picture of what happened. That's actually a pretty good reminder of how we should read the gospel account in general. Because each of the gospel account shares certain details. None of them share every single detail. And some skeptics have a heyday with this and say, see, each of these Gospels, they're all different and they contradict each other and so we can't trust this account. But it's not true at all. The details are slightly different based on what each one shares, but they're not contradictory. They need to be fit together. And when we do so, the four Gospels give us the fullest and most accurate account about Jesus' resurrection and his interaction with the disciples. But when this group of women arrive at the tomb, they're in for a shock. Because the stone in front of the tomb has been rolled back. And their surprise turns to fear when an angel descends and and sits on that rock. Actually, we know it was two angels, though Matthew focuses on the one who's speaking. And their appearance is like lightning and their clothing was white as as snow. Now, we have to pause here because Sunday school... uh, 
pictures and drawings show this as a nice little neat scene. And the stone is kind of just rolled slightly to the side over the tomb. And a a nice man is sitting on on top of the stone. And we lose all of the significance of of what has happened here. I think the reality was not so tame at all. I think it's more likely that the stone has been hurled aside by the earthquake. And a representative from heaven has come down and sat in victory over the conquered grave. That's what has happened here. Now, if you think about the, the Pharisees, the poor Pharisees, they thought they had the tomb as secure as it could possibly be. First, they put a gigantic rock in front of it, and then they sealed it with the official seal so that if anyone tampered with the stone, they would be in trouble with the law. And having put the stone there and backed it with legal authority, they then added some armed guards just for good measure. No one's getting into that tomb. Except that those guards were like toothpicks in front of a wrecking ball. When God's representatives came down in resurrection victory and the stone was thrown away and the guards are left passed out on the ground. And we get this picture of Psalm 2 where it says that the Lord sits in heaven and laughs at the vain plotting of the people. And declares instead with resurrection power, I have set my king on Zion. Now that's what's happening here on, on Easter morning. And the angel, the angel then, then speaks to the women. And we have to, we have to note that this was no trick of the, the blinding sunlight. If you're, if you're familiar with some of the history of, of many who have looked at the Bible and said, well, surely a man didn't really rise from the grave. How else might we explain what we have here? And so some said, well, maybe on the sunrise, the sun just crested the rock and hit the women with a blinding light, and they thought it was an angel. Well, we can't, we can't assume that just because someone lived 2,000 years ago, they were totally gullible. Angels did not show up every day, and they knew something different than a sunrise when they saw it. And after all, They didn't just see something blinding. The angel spoke to them, and the women heard it. And if that's not enough for us, we have to note that the guards heard it too. And the guards had every reason not to want this to be true, but they reported the same facts. Now, we find out in the verses following that the chief priests and Pharisees came up with their own story, but the guards came and reported the same story that the women did. This is exactly what had happened. So look at... Look at what the angel says. He says, you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. I want you to notice a few things about the angel's words here. First of all, notice that the angel didn't come down in order to pitch a new religion. Or to to suggest a new way of living. Or a new philosophy for life. No, the angel came down to declare facts about an event that has just happened. And not only has the angel come down to to propose facts of what happened, but he gives them details to guarantee those facts. Note that he starts by saying, you are here seeking Jesus. This is important because another one of the suggestions of those who would say that that the Gospels are, are not accurate is that the women went that morning, but they went to the wrong tomb. They were in the wrong place. But the angel denies that theory. He says, you are here seeking Jesus. In other words, you're in the right place. You're here at the same place Jesus was put on Friday 
but he's not here. And why was he not there? Well, the angel says he has risen as he said. Well, that's an important note because as surprising as it was to these women that Jesus rose from the dead, it shouldn't have been surprising. This is exactly what Jesus had said would happen. Those of you who have been with us on a regular basis know we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark. And over the last several chapters, we've seen three different occasions where Jesus said to his disciples, I am going to be killed by the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, and I will rise again in three days. This is exactly what Jesus had said would happen. And so we find here just another reason to trust Jesus' words, to be assured that Jesus' words are true because his resurrection has happened just as he said. But if the women had any doubts about this, notice that the angel then invites them to come in and look at the facts for themselves. In other words, the angel doesn't say, just trust me, Jesus is risen. Now the angel says, come, see the place where he lay. Because again, this is a fact that can be verified by witnesses. When I hear the angel's words, come, see the place that he lay, I think of Jesus' words to Thomas a week later. You remember Thomas? Thomas is the one who regularly uh, doubted. He, he, was, he called himself a realist, um, but he was always cynical and wanted things to be proven to him and said, I'm not believing Jesus has risen from the dead, not unless I can touch him with my fingers. And so when Jesus comes, what does he say to Thomas? He says, Thomas, come, put your finger in my hands. Put your hand in my side. Do not disbelieve, Thomas, but believe. See, touch, hear, feel, and believe. It's the same thing that the Apostle John wrote in his letter of 1 John. In chapter 1, he begins this way. That which we have heard, which we have looked upon, which our hands have touched, we proclaim to you. See, that's the nature of the resurrection. Not an idea, not a philosophy, not an inspiring... No, it is an event, a fact that can be witnessed, seen, touched, felt. It is true. And that is what happened on Easter morning. The question is, having heard, seen, touched the place where Jesus lay and been told of his resurrection, how did the women respond? That's what I want to look at next. So if you look at verses 7 to 10 that we read, you'll see how the women responded. You know, firstly, it says that they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. Now, my favorite word in that sentence is the word quickly. They departed quickly. Because fear and great joy are two of the most powerful motivators of speed. You know how fear can motivate speed. In fact, I can think uh, of some very respectable people in my life who shall remain anonymous who have moved with surprising alacrity at the presence of a spider. (laughs) Fear can motivate great speed. And perhaps the only thing that can make us move faster is when something of great excitement happens and we want to race to sell someone as fast as we can. I'm sure many of you have been in the situation where you're at, you're at home and the van pulls up, maybe it's your kids, maybe it's your grandkids, and they have something they want to tell you and the, the, the vehicle's not even in park yet. They've jumped out, slammed the door, they're running in to tell you what they want to tell you. Fear and great joy lead these women to go quickly 
from the tomb to tell the disciples. Why fear and great joy? Well, fear because they have confronted something so far outside their expectation and outside of their realm of experience. The supernatural has broken in and a dazzling representative of heaven has spoken to them. How could they not be afraid in the presence of such a one? But do you note, and I think this is important in the details, that it does not say great fear and joy. It says fear and great joy. In other words, they are afraid, but it is joy that is the dominant emotion of the two. Because the grief that overwhelmed them has been turned on its head. The man that they loved is alive again. The one they expected to bring salvation and the redemption of Israel has actually not been done away with by the religious authorities as they thought. He has overcome them and he's overcome even death itself. And so yes, even though there is much that they don't understand yet, great joy was the surging emotion that drove their dash back to tell the disciples what they had seen. So fear, but great joy. But that's the next, the next response then is their instinct to go and tell the disciples what they have heard. And on the one hand, again, this is perfectly natural. When we find out something exciting, the first thing we want to do is go and tell. I mean, I think about the first time I discovered Chick-fil-A's Cow Appreciation Day. All you have to do is dress up in black and white and you get free chicken sandwiches. What could be better? And I started telling all my family and all my friends and half of them said, well, yeah, we've known about that for years. But I kept telling people. And that was over a chicken sandwich. Here we have resurrection. The resurrection of the Son of God. The Son of God who has come to bring redemption and salvation for His people. So how could these women not be burning to tell what they had seen and what they had heard? But you notice that this going and telling was not just a natural instinct. It's also what the angel told them to do. The angel says, go and tell His disciples and they will see Him in Galilee. And it's not just the angel. In verses 9 and 10, Jesus Himself comes and meets the women. And he gives them the same instruction. Go and tell my brothers. And so what we find is that Jesus' first instructions to his people on Easter morning are go and tell. And if we review the Gospels, we find that that's exactly what happened. The report spreads like wildfire among Jesus' disciples and these women and those who are with them. Because how could they not talk about this unexpected development? There was fear. There was great joy. There was the desire and the instruction to go and tell. But there's one more response, and we find it in verse 9. As the women are going back to the disciples, Jesus himself comes to them and says, Greetings. And in the Greek, this is the casual, everyday sort of greeting, like, Hey guys, how's it going? As if he hadn't just been killed three days later and now risen again in resurrection glory. As if it was the most natural thing in the world that he would be there to talk with them. But upon seeing him, the immediate response of these women, you see it there in verse 9. They bowed down and took hold of his feet and worshipped. You see, it's one thing to hear about Jesus. It's one thing to believe there's a God or that Jesus was probably a real person. 
but to come face to face with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. To know that this Jesus is risen and he is the Son of God with power and to come into his presence. To see the one who was killed but has taken up his life again in resurrection glory. The only response to that Jesus is to fall down and worship. And that is just what these women did. So how did they respond to the facts of that first Easter morning? Fear, but great joy. Go and tell and worship. That's the response we see. Well, if that's what happened on the first Easter 2,000 years ago, we next need to ask, what does this have to do with us today on Easter morning of 2023? Well, we too need to consider the facts of Easter morning. Because there is a huge difference between spending our time discussing possible approaches to life or how to live a good life in general and responding to an actual fact, an event that demands a certain response. I was thinking about this this recently as I read a story of several Marines. These Marines were serving in Iraq. And it said that as they went on their tours, they would often discuss amongst themselves what would happen if a grenade was launched in the midst of them and they took their armored helmet and covered the grenade with their armored helmet and fell on top of it. Would that armored helmet be enough to save them and their comrades? Well, that's a nice general discussion hypothetically to have. Would it? Would it not? We don't know. But then one day they faced that exact scenario. And as the grenade came in and hit the the ground in a split second, they had to decide, how am I going to respond? And Corporal Jason Dunham fell on the grenade, covering it with his helmet and smothering the blast. And sadly, as many of you might expect, the helmet was not enough to save Corporal Dunham. But it was enough between him and his helmet to save all of his companions. That's the difference between a hypothetical discussion and an actual event that demands a response. And in a similar way, if Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and if he has actually risen from the dead as a fact in history, that matters and it demands a response. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, if Christ is still in the grave, our faith is futile and we are most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the grave. And that fact was witnessed by more than 500 witnesses, many of whom were still alive while Paul was writing. So he could be fact-checked in what he was saying. And if Jesus Christ has actually been risen from the grave as a fact in history, and that means one of two things. If God raised Jesus from the dead, it means that God has accepted Jesus' sacrifice and verified his offer of salvation and that we can have the hope of resurrection life with him by the power of his spirit if we put our faith in him. But it also means if he was the son of God whom God sent and vindicated through resurrection, then for me to reject him or to ignore him and think as I live best live as I think best instead, then such a decision is sure to come with consequences. So if this fact is true, it demands a response. 
Either we look to him in faith and find resurrection hope ourselves, or we are rejecting and ignoring the Son of God that he has raised from the dead. And we dare not do that without hope of just punishment. And if that's true, then each one of us here this morning has to decide how we're going to respond. That was what Lee Strobel, the former investigative journalist, concluded in November of 1981. Some of you know the name of Lee Strobel. He was an atheist whose life was shaken when his wife declared that she was going to become a Christian. And so Strobel decided that as much as he was sure that the story of Jesus was just a legend, he ought to do his due diligence. And so for 21 months, nearly two years, he put all of his journalist training to work, interviewing experts, looking into the evidence to determine whether Jesus' life, death, and resurrection were real events or not. And over those months, this atheist became convinced that by every standard of history and every standard of logic and every standard of evidence he had been trained to evaluate that the historical truth of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ were true events. And Strobel concluded, he said, by the end of my 21 months of research, I concluded that it would have taken greater unsubstantiated faith to maintain my atheism than to trust in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. But then Strobel was faced with a question. He said, if these facts are true, then how am I going to respond? And Strobel wrote this. He said, if Jesus is the Son of God, his teachings are more than just good ideas. They are divine words that I can trust and build my life on. And if Jesus himself conquered death, then he can open the door of eternal life for me too. And not only that, but if Jesus loves me as he says, and he has my best interests at heart, then that means I have nothing to lose and everything to gain by committing my life to him. And not just that, Strobel concluded, if Jesus is who he claims to be, then as my creator, he rightfully deserves my allegiance, my obedience, and my worship. And so Strobel repented of living for himself and ignoring the Son of God. And he put his trust in Christ. He changed his career and trained to become a pastor. And he wrote his findings from this 21-month project and published them under the title, The Case for Christ. And I think if you consider Strobel's response for a minute, you'll notice a number of parallels between how Strobel responded and how the four women responded on that first Easter morning. Fear, or at least a humble awe, recognizing that Jesus is the Son of God, something completely outside my frame of reference and deserving my allegiance and my obedience, whom I, to this point, have ignored and rejected. And that is no light matter. But great joy to discover that this Son of God didn't show up to condemn me for my sins, which I'm all too well aware of, but to offer His life in my place and to invite me to trust Him that I might have the hope of eternal life with Him A joy so great that it was worth changing my life and changing my career over. And then what did Strobel do? Well, he immediately went and told. He became a pastor to preach the truth that he had come to know. He wrote his findings in this book, proclaiming what he had discovered that others might know too what Jesus had done 
and trust him as their savior. And he worshiped. Think of that last statement that I think hit the nail on the head. Strobel said, if Jesus is who he claims to be, he rightfully deserves my allegiance, my obedience, and my worship. And can I suggest that for every one of us here this morning, that's the response that we ought to have as well? Fear with great joy to go and tell and to worship. Because inviting you to put your trust in Jesus is not about becoming a religious fanatic. It's not about adopting a new philosophy of life or recommitting yourself to doing good like Jesus did good. No, it's not about those things. This is about a man in history who spoke with authority like no one had spoken before him, who healed the sick, who raised the dead, and then arose from the grave himself proving that he is Lord of all and the Son of God just as he claimed to be. And if that doesn't cause us to respond with a humble awe, a fear of the Lord, but also with a great joy, knowing that this Son of God has come to invite us to know him, to call us his brothers and sisters. It's an amazing fact about this story. Just consider Jesus' words in verse 10. Remember that this Jesus had spent three years with his disciples and he had seen all of their rash words and their desire to condemn others. He had seen them flee from him and even deny him to save their own skins after saying that they would go to the death with him. And so when he rises again in all of his resurrection power and glory, he says to the women, go and tell those selfish narcissists, those men who betrayed me and fled and who condemned others. No, that's not what Jesus said. He said, go and tell my brothers to meet me in Galilee. He said to them later, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He said to them, according to John on that first night, peace be with you. My peace I give to you. He said, see my hands and my side. Do not disbelieve but believe. Do you see the grace of our risen Lord who invites us to know him and to come to him and have life in him? So how can we not respond with great joy? You have been justified by faith if you put your trust in him. You have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The love of God has been poured into our hearts through his Holy Spirit who has been given to us in Christ. And as we stand in front of such a Savior... Our only response, while our hearts are filled with great joy, is to fall down and worship him. And when we fall down and worship him, we hear his first instructions. Go and tell. Go and tell. Go and tell. And so whether you're faced with this good news for the first time this morning, or whether you're hearing this news again that's changed your life, as we're faced with the glorious fact of Christ's resurrection, may we join these women from that first Easter morning. And may we respond to these facts from history with fear, but with great joy, by going and telling, and by falling down to worship this risen King. Let's pray. Oh, our Father, how we thank you for sending your Son for our sake. How we thank you for proving and verifying all of his claims 
by raising him from the dead. Thank you for raising him up and so confirming that you have accepted his sacrifice on our behalf and declaring that he is judge of all so that if we are in him, that verdict will be righteous, accepted. My brothers and sisters, come dwell with me forever. Oh, Father, may we respond with such trust in him. And may we worship with great joy and then go and tell for the glory of your name. Pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.